0: We're combining all of our adult uh, classes this morning, just for a fun time. A number of you had asked, uh, when was the last time we did a and a It's been a long time, but a number of you have asked if we could do that again, so uh, I was placed on the spot for this again. If somebody could close those back doors, that would be great. So we'll, we'll pray in just a moment, but here's how Q&As usually work. This is just uh, human nature is it for the first 25 minutes, you can't get anybody to ask any questions. And then five minutes before we're done, somebody asks a nuclear question that sparks 50,000 others. So ask the nuclear ones up front, and then we'll, we'll get going from there. I, um, I need, does somebody have pencil or pen and blank paper with them? All right, so um, Brighton, when, not if, I don't know the answer to a question, Will you write that question down if I ask you to? And then that way I can fulfill my obligation and come back and bring an answer. So uh, get lots of paper out and a couple of extra pens and uh, anything you need. So let's do this. Let's open in prayer. And then you start thinking about what we can discuss together as the body of Christ. And I'll give you some, some maybe some guidelines. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord's Day. We thank you for the reminder every single Sunday that this is the day that our dear Savior was raised from the dead, that he uh, proclaimed victory over death, and that he paved the way for us to be justified. He paved the way for us to conquer death as well, and now that we can celebrate and we can say, where, O death, is your sting? So we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together As we have an informal discussion right now, Lord, I pray that it would be uh, useful to us and glorifying to you as we learn how to uh, continue to walk in the manner worthy of the calling which we've been called. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let me just encourage some guidelines. You can ask anything you want. Um, But uh, if we could focus maybe a little bit more on uh, issues that, that face us, in our regular lives, and a little bit less on super obscure theological questions that don't necessarily make a huge difference um, as far as how we're going to live Monday through Sunday, uh, that sort of thing. So it, anything is fine, but I'm ask, ask the questions that are uh, maybe you want to hear answered from the Bible and that sort of thing. We'll do the best we can, and uh, we'll go from there. So ready, set, go. Raise your hand so I can see you. Yeah, Bob. I uh, see last March you we were speaking about spiritual gifts mm-hmm. and Romans twelve and uh you named seven gifts and uh which I get familiar with, but you mentioned something about uh speaking gifts, not speaking <clears throat> gifts, and I really have been I, I like what right I hear, but I want you to blow them on that. Oh that's um yeah, that's from 1 Peter four. Um that is Peter's kind of simplification of spiritual gifts. I don't have it memorized, so we'll we'll turn to it. First Peter four, and he says, um, "Let's start in verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins." Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, verse 11 is Peter's just simplified here are the spiritual gifts. You're either speaking or you're serving, and and really try to think of one that doesn't fit in one of those two categories. I don't think there are any, and so so essentially uh, we have two obligations in the church: that is to proclaim the gospel. Those are speaking gifts that would be anything from uh, preaching a in a formal worship service all the way to uh exhorting somebody one-on-one saying you know here's what the bible says about this issue and then we have the serving gifts where we love one another um not so much with words but with the things that we do and so you, you boil it all down all of us should be speaking serving or both that's what we do so that's a good way to remember it good question other questions should we go back and forth between the aisles Yes. A late for me now, but what, what in the Bible does it speak at all about retirement, such as that, you know? Does it speak about retirement? Not in the Bible, retire. Well, let's let's define retirement. Um, if if you're talking about trying to accumulate enough wealth so that you don't have to work for money, uh, Proverbs does speak of, of saving money. Proverbs speaks of uh, being diligent with your money. Uh, to say, to say, I'm not going to save anything, I'm not going to be financially responsible because the Bible doesn't speak to, of retirement, I don't think that's biblical. To say, I want to save up enough money so that I can live on what I've made, so that I can spend all of my time doing more important things like serving the Lord in the church, uh, serving my family, and and now be freed up to do things, um, that's a that 's a godly and worthy thing i don 't think we can make a case in scripture that the goal of retirement is to play golf six days a week and to spend your spend your time traveling and just being essentially catching up on all your hedonism from your whole life that you never got to do i don 't think you can make a case for that um, frankly I, I love it when i see when I see men who who have been diligent and they save money and fifty five sixty sixty five they're done working. Uh, to me, those are, those, are, those are golden guys, and you're one of them, who can now be available to serve in the church. And, and you've been doing that. So uh, um, it's not to, you know, it's not to just now have the greatest garden on earth and to do things to just please yourself. Uh, my grandfather was a pastor. Both grandfathers were pastors. And, and on my dad's side, uh, he retired because his denomination made him retire at a certain time so he just simply turned around and started volunteering uh, as a volunteer pastor in the same church where he was the senior pastor the week before and he just came on and just kept doing the same work essentially except for preaching and uh, did wonderful ministry Uh, he would say that his best ministry was after he retired so good question back to the right uh, I, I would add this too. There, I, I, I appreciate Darren's response because there is a fine line. There's nothing wrong with entertaining music with Christian lyrics, but when we gather together for worship, that that's a specific function. It's a specific command that the Lord has given to us, and and there are ways that you can turn even good worship music into entertainment because there's a there's a, a lack of participation. If you've ever been to a worship service where the music was so loud that you can't hear yourself singing. I have a problem with that. Not because I don't like loud music, I actually really like loud music. Um, and when I'm in my car by myself, I'm, I'm the guy you're sitting next to that's irritating you with the boom, boom, boom. And, um, but there's a, there's a participation element that, that we have to work hard at. That's why I don't like um, having, you know, the the musical star on stage and everybody else 200 feet away from him. That's not participating. We, there's a closeness here. There's a, there's a proximity to one another. Um, But I think that the teaching element is there. Um, When I was in college, there was a, song that came out uh, called Butterfly Kisses at Night, and it was, you know, written by a Christian guy, and it was all about his relationship with his daughter, and it makes you cry, and, and there's, you know, she's a little girl, and then there's the butterfly kisses with the, you know, the little eyelashes at the wedding, and, and you're just crying, and oh, it's wonderful, it's a, it's, a, it's a heartwarming song, and then I visited a church once, and they sang it part of the worship service, Wait, because they mentioned the word God once in there, that doesn't make it a worship song um here's here 's i think I think maybe the most key component. How does the gospel fit into this into the song or the group of songs? If the gospel is rarely mentioned um, that a few years ago there was kind of a movement to to sing all the big God songs. You know, God is the creator of the universe and all this, and and those are good, but you have to get it down to the cross also, not just the big creator God songs. We have to get down to the little ones about the the intimacy of the cross, the pain and the anguish that Christ went through. So put all those together. You asked for bullet points. I don't know if we we did that exactly, but um, uh, teaching, the gospel, proximity as far as... um, participation together and and it takes discernment this is why you need you need men who are leading in a way who who love the lord love the gospel love to worship and will guide and lead that process because there's not a magic formula uh, you can you can pick great songs and make it a completely unworshipful experience uh, for people by doing it in the wrong way good question ping 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 and, over and here actually, can I add to yes that please too. do and then, and then nate <laughs> worship leader can do all that right stuff too but ultimately it does come down to the individual heart of the worshipper. absolutely um you could have the most glorious i mean you could have Bach standing up here leading the music and, and it'd be the most glorious thing you've ever heard but if your heart is not tuned um to sing the praise of God um and to honor him it's worthless um, it is up to the individual heart of the worshiper um, when it all comes down. To- yes, yeah, very good. Um, it's the same thing as listening to a sermon. You know, if you you can make a decision. You know, I, I'm going to just sort of cross my arms and, and be passive, and boy, you better feed me a steak and stuff it down my throat and, and move my jaw for me and make it make me chew it. Or you can have the attitude... I'm going to find some nugget of truth. Even if this guy is having the worst day of his life preaching, I'm going to find something. I'm going to ask the Lord to help me. So it does it depend on our attitude. Very good. Ping, ping, ping. I did Nate, and then we'll do Dan. Yeah. Well, you can you can look at the at the individual categories at, at tongues and, and healing and miracles and all that and you can do the individual arguments and really where I like to go that is most useful to me is uh Hebrews chapter 2. Yes. Oh, you didn't hear the question. Okay. Uh just broad support for uh the cessation of the miracle gifts, the So, where I would go is uh, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. And then elsewhere, they're called apostolic gifts there's uh, you got to put lots of little pieces together i think hebrews 2 3 and 4 is our our biggest one shot uh, maybe in the new testament he bore witness by signs wonders various miracles i think the the greatest thing that that brings to me is the fact that we didn't have a written new testament we didn't have um the witness that is the word of god as far as Uh, Matthew all the way through Revelation and so if some guy shows up and says I have the words of life I know I know the truth and he just starts saying it that's not going to mean much but when the apostles and others who were gifted came and they were able to uh, do miracles and to uh, even even the certainly the miracle of of tongues of spoken languages they're always human languages in the new testament it's never gibberish it's it's a human language uh, imagine what it would be like to to walk into a a small gathering of believers and you know for a fact that none of them know the language that you speak and yet you're hearing the gospel proclaimed in your language that that would be uh, certainly a wonderful witness but the the biggest thing is if you make a comparison of everything that's going on now, supposedly in the in the name of speaking in tongues and, and healing and all that, it doesn't compare at all to what was happening in the New Testament. It's not the same. And so, um, uh, either of you guys go to the, you go to Nate Busenitz's, uh seminar at the at Strange Fire. Was it Strange Fire? No, it was a Shepherd's Conference. Uh, <clears throat> Nathan Boosness at the seminary, he makes a long presentation, and since his office is right across the hall from mine, I knocked on his door and said, do you have a copy of that? So I've got it sitting on my shelf, the actual notes. He gave me his actual notes. Here's the thing, even people who are reformed, even those who say, yes, we believe in the doctrines of grace, we believe in, in, in justification, and we believe in regeneration, we understand these things, but we also believe that these spiritual gifts uh, of tongues and healing and so forth have continued, and they call themselves continuationists. As you compare what's going on today with what was actually going on in Scripture, there is not any comparison. And so really, to be intellectually honest, they can't be continuationists. They have to say that something different is happening now. Um, anybody here ever, and I have, attend a Pentecostal church, the, the real kind? Yeah, oh, wow, we got a whole uh, All right, you know why it's called Pentecostal? It's not just because, it's not just because, well, we liked what happened on Pentecost. They're called Pentecostal churches because the originating belief was that the speaking in tongues that they were trying to generate were actual real languages. And they sent people, they sent missionaries overseas. They said, you don't need to study Greek or Hebrew. You don't need to study Swahili. Wherever you go, they sent missionaries overseas who met up with people who... Didn't speak their language, and they started saying, "I should have bought a Honda, but I bought the Toyota instead." And and nothing happened because they they couldn't understand. The reason Pentecostals are called Pentecostals originally is because they did believe rightfully that tongues were spoken human languages but it didn't work and they, what they were doing was gibberish and now that, that piece of history has been lost. Uh, Pentecostal church itself doesn't remember that history. So I would say that if you're going to answer in short form, we have a completed Bible. We have the confirmation that you need. If somebody says, and, and there is a whole movement out there, the signs and wonders movement that says that the gospel is to proclaim the gospel and confirm it with signs and wonders. Well, I think about uh, John, who wrote these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. What things? All the, 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 the doctrine that's written there the end of the Gospel of John, he says, he says all these miracles have been recorded so that you might believe we have all that we need. And so I think the existence of a Bible, of a completed Bible, is our greatest proof. And the fact that if you go step by step through all of the the gifts that are supposedly happening today, they bear no resemblance whatsoever to what was happening in the New Testament. Very short, incomplete answer, but uh, get MacArthur's book, Strange Fire. It's a lot of fun to read, and it'll answer that question better. Very good. And then, Dan, you had a question as well. Oh, that's not an easy question. That's a, uh, yeah, the, the two major views in John 15. Um, in fact, let's just go there and read that part. I even said don't throw hard theological questions, but he did it anyway. John 15, verse one, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Okay, there's, as I understand it, there's many more than these, but there's two views that kind of clash with one another, that when Jesus says abide in me, um, that that could possibly be a warning to those who have not yet come to full faith in Christ. that, that you need to come all the way to faith in christ um the other major view is that of course he's speaking to believers that they need to abide um i i think that the passage kind of explains itself this is just where i come from i'm very simplistic verse two he makes a comparison every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away Using other scriptures, and we won't go to them now, we, can, we, we want to use the preponderance of scripture that we, we wouldn't say that that means somebody's losing their salvation. What we would say, though, is that this is somebody who knows the truth, who has toyed with the truth, maybe who has been a churchgoer, who has heard the gospel, and they they do not have faith in Christ. And how do we know this? This is what John 15 is about. We know it because they don't bear fruit. Their life doesn't change. There, there's nothing new. So he gives this dichotomy Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The believer, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it, bear, it may bear more fruit. So we have the dichotomy between the unbeliever and the believer. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. I think we would say just logically, good hermeneutics would say, now he's speaking to the believers. Uh, he would never say to an unbeliever, you are clean. So he's speaking to the believer, and I think that continues in verse four, abide in me and I in you. It doesn't say so that I won't cut you off the vine. It says as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, there's another, there's a nuance to to this that says, is there such a thing as a Christian who doesn't bear fruit? Because Jesus is saying you have to abide in me to bear fruit, well, again, the fruit of the Spirit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Would you say there's such a thing as a Christian, a regenerated person who is a new creation in Christ? The old has gone; the new has come. Who never demonstrates those nine characteristics, those nine fruit? I don't think we could say that. And so, based on other Scripture, I would say that abide in me, and I in you. That's not just a command to the Christian. That's what the Christian does. That's what a real Christian does. There's no, no such thing as a Christian who has no care, no thought about abiding in Christ. Now, what that actually means, what does that mean? Um, I, I think uh, if you take Jesus' prayer in John 17, uh, he asks the Father for for the church to be unified. He wants us to worship together. Um, he He wants us to... Uh, obey him if you love me you obey my commands so you can you can give a long laundry list of what abiding in christ is but i don't think we could say that there's such a thing as a, a believer who has no care or thought for abiding in christ that would be the short answer so all right bing bing we've had two over here let's go to this side of the room yeah ben. i was i'm sorry i did not make adequate eye contact Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there is a written will. You've got the will for us to be mm-hmm. seen. okay, it's a, there's a recipe and we put some ingredients into it, okay? Uh, the first ingredient is that we know we are to pray for the Lord's will. Um, and Jesus told us to pray that way. So, so we understand that ingredient goes in there. There is also the ingredient of persistence in prayer. Now, where does persistence cross the line into lack of faith? I think persistence crosses the line into lack of faith when we're going to be discontent, we're going to be sinfully lacking in peace until God does what I want him to do. But short of that, I'm going to be persistent. Lord, I, I would like to know what your will is, but here's what I believe it is, and I'm going to pray for it like crazy until you show me otherwise. I think that there's a, there's a fatherly love uh, when we are persistent. Um, so first ingredient is praying for his will. Second ingredient is being persistent but not to the point where we're we're going to uh, sin by believing that we can't be happy until God does what we want Him to do. Third ingredient comes from Romans twelve two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I I think that um, I, I heard a guy say once the first thing that a new Christian should learn is to. Uh, ask God show me your will well that's a really broad spectrum I think the first thing a Christian should learn number one is that you can't lose your salvation number two the word of God is how you discern God's will and we start with this broad big picture somewhere in here is God's will well the more you read scripture you start to narrow that focus down to where okay because of wisdom, because of what I know the Lord requires of me, because I know the commands of the New Testament, I can narrow down the Lord's will to one, two, or three, um, viable choices that are good. So there's kind of a progression that you would go through in prayer, um, and as you're trying to discern the Lord's will. And the progression starts with, is there, first, is there a clear black and white sin issue here? You know, if somebody's praying, Lord, show me your will, should I divorce my wife? No. That's easy. Um, somebody can't ask me, actually asked me that question. Would you pray with me, Pastor? I'm praying about whether to divorce my wife or not. So number one, I don't need to pray about it. We already have the answer to that. So beyond that, now, now we go down to the next level, which is wisdom. We use wisdom to discern. Uh, this is why we're, we're transformed by the renewal of our mind to understand God's word, to make wise choices, and to, to understand if I have five options, some of them are not wise. They may not be inherently sinful, but they're just simply not wise. And so we're going to narrow it down that way. As you get to, let's say, um, the classic example is you have two or three choices that that none of them are sinful. They all seem to be equally wise. Uh, At that point, uh, if you've done all that you can, there's some things that you do. I I think for me, um, if I sense I'm making the decision quickly, I'm going to stop because I tend to make bad decisions quickly and so I'll just ask the Lord for some help and ask him to um, to, to help make it easier on me uh, we, we use this phrase all the time so, and I, I kind of hate it and love it at the same time about God opening and closing doors because there's some problems with that theologically um, but it is useful when you're asking the Lord for help and he gives you one choice wow okay that that makes it very clear But beyond that, when you get to that, then you go to Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, which does not mean, incidentally, that he gives you whatever you want. It means that he places in your heart the desires he wants you to have. And you do those things. Um, Somebody says, somebody says, uh, why are you at Grace Bible Church? The answer is simple. It's where I want to be. It's very simple. It's wise. It's not sinful. It's it's the right thing to do for me. But I think... um, Number one is absolutely being transformed by the renewal of your mind. A brand new believer—that's where they're going to struggle. How do I know God's will? That's the big question that young people have. I've done a, a college group Q and As before. It's always the number one question: How do I learn God's will? Well, what they're talking about is how do I decide who to marry, what to do with my life. That's not the issue do the things you know are God's will already, that you are to be uh, set apart for for Christ, you're to be obedient to him, you're to do all the things that demonstrate the fruit of your salvation, and as you're doing those things at that point, it becomes less and less important what you do for a living, and um, less and less important whether you are married or not. Uh, One guy I, I talked to or, or I listened to, he was addressing the singles group about, you know, their big concern was, how do I find the right spouse? And he said, you run the race as hard as you can straight to heaven, and you're running hard, you're obedient, and you look, and there, hey, there's someone running next to me, the same race. You want to kind of run this race together for a few decades, and that's it. So I think there's some ingredients to it. Put all the ingredients in there. There's not a magic um, Lord, show me your will. Bing! And there it is. He wants us to be discerning and wise. Otherwise, we wouldn't have uh, the Bible. We wouldn't need the word. So, good question. Bing, bing. How about this side? Yeah, <laughs> Ben standing up in the back. You were on an airplane and it going down and you 60 seconds. <laughs> How many angels are on the head of a pen? Sixty seconds, the last sixty seconds i 'd probably have my head in the pillow screaming my head off because i 'm not afraid to die i 'm just not thrilled about the process um, that 's easy depends on if my wife is with me or not. If my wife is with me, my number one job is to is to hold her that 's it um, if if she 's not with me then i 'm going to do whatever I can to probably use some keywords. You need to repent of your sin. You're about to meet a holy God, but God has paid for your sin through Jesus Christ. You must repent now. Beg him for mercy now. That's what I would present. But if Sylvia's with me, it's too bad. I'm going to be right there. And if, it's, if I'm by myself on a plane, I'm just going to probably pray and suck my thumb until we hit the ground and like that. Good question. Yes, Jane. Jane. Mm-hmm. What causes that? Uh, I think, first of all, human nature that's sinful, and also we have an accuser who's accusing us all the time, um, Satan. And not that he's speaking directly into your mind or anything weird like that, but um, it, it's against our nature to feel forgiven, And so, and I use the word feel not in an emotional sense, but in the sense of truly believing it. So I I don't know what causes it. I know what the solution is to it. And that is to continually remind yourself of Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when it pops back, oh yeah, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 103, he is, he, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgression from me. And so the Word of God is your answer. The, the truth is the answer. Um, the feelings of condemnation are, they're like uh, when, you, when you have a wound. You can see the wound, and for a while, even when it's healed, you push on it, and it hurts. And what you're aiming for is, you can see the scar, but you can push on it, and it doesn't do anything. You can remember the sin that you, you, you committed, but... Um, I mean, frankly, we sin so frequently that we don't have time to really just ponder one in particular all the time. By the time you're done pondering, you've already done seven more that you need to, you need to confess. But every time your mind wants to return to pondering it, you, you just battle it with truth. And I think over the course of time, you begin to, to grasp that justification is for real, that you have you have the imputed, the credited righteousness of Christ. And, and the truth is, is that although I sinned and I asked for forgiveness, I've repented, I've changed my actions accordingly. Um, to repent doesn't mean just to say I'm sorry. It means to change what I'm doing in that situation. As you grasp justification, you begin to grasp, okay, when God looks at me he is looking through the lens of Christ, and he sees the righteousness of Christ. And you just grab onto that, and you, and you hold onto it for dear life, and you thank the Lord for it. So, um, but I love, you know, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and that's key, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's not a salvation prayer. That's the prayer of a believer that you you are clean before the Lord. Um, good way to think about it, you remember when when uh, Jesus was going to wash the feet of the disciples and in the upper room, the night he was going to be arrested and Peter said, you're not gonna wash my feet, no way. You're the Lord, I'm Peter, no way you're washing my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter goes, then wash my whole body. Here I, I can imagine him starting to rip off clothes and, and everybody's going, no, no, we don't, we don't wanna do that. <laughs> But Jesus said, I only need to wash your feet. The rest of you is clean. And that's a great picture of, of forgiveness for what we might call family sin, that in Christ, I'll never be kicked out of the family, but I do need to be cleansed of, of the, where my feet have trod and the, the dust on my feet of sinfulness. But you fight it with scripture. I don't know the cause, but fight it with scripture and the truth. Good question. Yes, ma'am. Well, let's define peace, okay? The, the biblical definition of peace is the fact that God isn't going to kill me, okay? I have peace with God. That's the, that's the theological definition. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, um, again, I would say that's still connected to our salvation. Okay, let, let's use that phrase, and, and we'll have to go situationally here. I just have peace about this. Okay, Why? well because I feel peaceful once you define peace as an emotion now you've misdefined it and you because you can you can say you have peace about anything you know I'm eating my my 15th chocolate sundae today and I just have peace about this because well when you wake up in the middle of the night with the stomach ache of all stomach aches there's no peace anymore peace is not an emotion. If somebody says, I have peace about this, and I say, why? And they say, because I've tested it against scripture, because I've looked at wisdom, because I have gotten together with a multitude of counselors, I've prayed through this, and to the best of my ability, I truly believe this is God's will for me to do. Okay, you have peace. Sometimes we use the phrase, I have peace about this. What that really means is, don't challenge what I'm doing because I like it. Don't challenge what may be a sinful course of action for me. Um, like, when, you know, people always do this. They say, you know, the Lord led me to tell you, really, wow, like spoken word? Was it in writing? How did he do that? You know, The Lord led me to tell you that you're wrong about assurance of salvation, that we have to continue. Somebody told me that once. I said, well, it can't be the Lord because he's not going to contradict his own word. So yes, yeah, we have peace about that. That's part of our Christian ease that we all speak and, and probably say it a lot. Good question. Yes, sir. I grew up in a lot of churches that define like, worship and ministries as things that you wouldn't know. Like, oh, well, we have a hot rod ministry. Or we have this, this. How would you biblically define like worship and what a ministry actually is? What can you actually classify as a ministry? And what can you classify as a ministry? Well, uh, yeah, that goes to philosophy of, of ministry. Um, I was in a church once that... Had a big meeting. They, they wanted to serve the community by picking up trash. You know those signs that say these two miles adopted by the so-and-so club? And they, they wanted to do that. And so uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a waste of time in the church, though, because nobody's going to come to faith in Christ. I can't imagine that anybody's ever pulled off by the side of the road and said, I just know this, you guys with your church t-shirts on, picking up trash, and I'd like to know how to come to faith in Christ, because I say, that's not going to happen. And we're called to proclaim the gospel. So we always go back to Colossians 128, which speaks of proclaiming Christ and bringing everyone into maturity. In Christ, anything that does one of those two things is ministry. Um, you can use a thousand different methods to uh, bring the gospel, connect the gospel with the elect to connect the gospel with with people. but um, you know here we try to be very, very narrowly focused. Um, what we were taught in seminary was that you think about three things that the church is about equipping the saints, uh, exalting God. Equipping, exalted and evangelism and if it doesn't fit under one of those three then it's probably not it's not an evil thing it's just not the church's job um, and you do you start to slide over into a social gospel uh, who is it Rick Gavin where is he is he here yeah he sent me a great article. It uh, was it this week about uh, the, the Methodist Church is is going through this big deal where they may split over the issue of homosexuality. I hope they do. I hope the real believers uh, show themselves and, and maybe get their act together. But there's a quote from one of their famous pastors who said that that the reason the church exists is for uh, I can't remember the phrase it was is to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. No, that's not the reason the church exists. Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. The church exists to make God big, to make him known in the world through the gospel of Christ. That's why we're here. So, so you always filter, when somebody wants to do a ministry, And there's lots of great ideas that don't need to be in the church. Um, you know, let's start a lawn mowing club. All right, how are you going to spread the gospel with that? Well, I just want to mow lawns. Go start a business and make money doing that. Don't bring that to the church, so. I saw a hand back here. Yeah, Rudy. Uh, Biblical view of gossip. gossip. Well, let's look at the attitude about it first. Uh, Ephesians 4 tells us our attitude and how we're to think about it. Ephesians 4, verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So every time we open our mouths, am I giving grace, am I building up, or am I tearing down? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know what the context is? Grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we are Speaking in a way that is sinful. Um, verse thirty-one: Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now I want you to know this something. These are uh, these are internal attitudes. Bitterness is internal. Wrath. This speaks of the desire to see somebody hurt. And anger that speaks of your your indignation toward them. But then it goes external, clamor and slander and malice those are things that now, these are external manifestations of internal sinful attitudes. This is why Hebrews 12:15 says, "Let all bitterness be put away from you so that uh, I can't remember exactly but it speaks of let me look it up. I, I memorized it in, in a different version, and now I'm confused. Every time new versions come out, it messes me up. Hebrews 12:15. It says, see to it, oh yeah, see to it that no one falls short to obtain the grace of God. I actually like the NAS, which says, see to it that no one falls, no one uh, comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. This is important in the church because when, when somebody comes to you and they say something negative about another person, a root of bitterness is something that, that takes root and can spread to many. I actually read an article once that uh, a guy theorized after he, he did some anecdotal studies of churches that had split and had difficulties. And, and it wasn't a scientific study, but his conclusion was that he believed that about 95% of church splits started with gossip, started with somebody using their mouths inappropriately. So, what do you do? Um, I'll tell you what I do. If somebody, and I know that they have a malicious intent, I'll stop them, and, and I'll say, you're speaking negatively about somebody else. If you want to continue that course of action, there's going to be consequences. And, the con- and I'm not talking as a pastor. I'm just talking as a believer. And the consequences are, if you, if you continue, you have two choices. Either I'm going to tell them that you were doing it, or you're going to go confess it. Which one do you want to do? And um, uh, y- you have to bite it like that. Uh, there's a way that we, that we participate in gossip that we think is, is okay and it's not, and that's to be the listener. The moment you listen and you, you receive that, you have now become complicit with, with that sin. And so now you have a problem as well. I, I, I am, if you ask me what things as a pastor I'm the least patient with, that's at the top of the list because it will destroy a body quickly. And, and it does spread, and you've got, especially in this day and age, with email and texting, and all of a sudden, you literally just have this this mushroom cloud of of just disgusting sin going through a body. People who have worshipped together, who have loved one another, who have stood next to each other, who have proclaimed the gospel together, suddenly not speaking to each other because the root of bitterness took root, and it by it many were defiled, and you now see sides being taken and and uh, just horrible things happening. So what do you do? Um, very kindly, but in no uncertain terms, say, I'm not comfortable with this line of conversation. And if you don't stop, I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you to go deal with this with that person, or I'm going to tell them. One of the two. So, and then Matthew 18 kicks in too. If they don't want to stop, like, oh no, I'm not. Okay, I'm not going to take excuses. What you're doing is gossip, just stop um and, and some people are are more prone to it than others uh, and, and it can be very insidious because you're just you're just sharing you know we're you know i just so and so you know i i really prayed for him because he had a lot of trouble with uh, sexual sin in his past and and um so we're just you know pray for him why did you tell me that i didn't need to know that first of all because i don't want to picture it and secondly why didn't you go deal with him you know that that 's the insidious kind because it feels friendly it 's not mean, it just feels kind of nice so so uh, I think our guide is ephesians four twenty nine Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Um, Rick Holland has made a great point. I, I learned this from him that uh, gossip is saying something about someone that you would never say if they were standing there. And flattery, which is just as sinful as saying something to somebody that you would never say if they weren't there. That, you know, both are sinful. They're, they're corrupting talk. Um, the people I look out for the most, not here, of course, but in ministry, are the ones who are just lathering me with praise and flattery continually. That's not real. That's not reality. Thank you, Rudy. Very good. Another question or two. Roger. Praying for patience, frankly, when the word patience comes up in my prayers, it's usually asking for forgiveness for not having had it in a situation and being reminded that I need, it, I need to be. On occasion, God is gracious to show me at the beginning of a situation, okay, I need to pray for patience right now. And, um, uh, but also, patience should be a fruit of the Spirit. It should not be something we always have to pray for. It should be, become more and more natural to us to default to be impatient but absolutely um, especially when you're younger pray for patience because we want everything to happen right now ironically the older you get you have less time to live but you are okay with things taking longer i don't know why that is It's funny so steve you had a question was it you oh sorry you did stand poor steve's like no i didn't have one <laughs> You know um we'll just we'll just go to scripture that nine of the ten ten commandments were i i won't even say transferred they were reiterated in the new testament and sabbath was left off sabbath was a sign to israel a sign of god's covenant with them and so it doesn't doesn't apply to us as far as the lord's day um there's actually a whole group of people who say that that uh Worship on Sunday was invented by Catholics, and therefore it's, it's awful and wrong, and that's just not the case. Um, the, the Lord's Day became a time of celebration and a time of worship for us based on the fact that that was the day that, that Christ was raised from the dead. But as far as having laws or rules that somehow Sunday should be slightly different, and we need to finish up here, um, there, there aren't any. What I would say is that if you're behaving in a way that's different on Sunday than you do the other days of the week, that's a sin issue. Um, where you know, when I grew up, in, well, I grew up in these old-fashioned circles where where Sunday was the Sabbath. You know, and the way you the way you worship God was to have the worst day of your whole week by not doing anything fun. Um, and well, ironically though, then you would go home and eat a gluttonous meal. You know, somehow because it's the lord's day i never understood that didn't argue with it but i I didn't understand it you know what i would say in our family um we try to make the lord's day more special because it is the lord's day and we devote our time to worship we consider it the first day of the week not the last day and and so um we, we enjoy it even the sabbath even if we were living in, in... If you were all Jewish and we were living in, in uh, the days when the Sabbath was kept, what did Jesus say about the Sabbath? Who was it made for? It was made for us. It was a gift, a wonderful gift. I mean, can you imagine living in a society? I, I wish almost that we had that. Imagine living in a society where nobody worked, nobody was, nothing was open on Sunday, except maybe 7-Eleven. We, we need that open. You ever been to a, you ever been to a, a town that has a, has a blue law where nothing's open on Sunday? It's totally legalistic and people who believe that aren't going to heaven because of it. But it's kind of neat in a way. It's kind of neat. So, so no, there's nothing. You don't wake up on a Sunday morning going, okay, I've got to get this right. You wake up and say, praise God, this is my day to celebrate Christ and, and enjoy that, enjoy fellowship. Uh, but I will say this. Uh, if the Lord's Day is something that is... that is that that you get it over with. I've, I've preached in a place where um, work was everything and literally people would, would show up to church and leave, shoot out the door so that he could go get another three quarters day of work in and make more money. That's wrong. Not, not wrong to work, but wrong to make that worship a, less of a priority. We could go on all morning. I've already gone 10 minutes over. I do want you to get to eat food and fellowship as well. So um, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you so much. Those were great questions. Our Father, thank you uh, for this time. We're grateful for your word. We don't, have to, we don't have to form opinions. All we have to do is look to the authority of Scripture. Lord, I pray uh, that our time, as we continue worshiping today, we have already begun, but as we continue in a more formal sense, Lord, of coming officially as a body uh, before the throne of grace here in a few minutes, I pray that you would... Bless that time, that you would humble our hearts. And even now, as we enjoy fellowship, enjoy time together, may you bless that time as well. Thank you for this precious body of believers that you have called out into salvation, called from darkness into the light. We're so thankful, Lord, for this family of believers. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. We'll see you in a few minutes.